0: First of all, welcome back to our high school Mexico mission team. Good to have you guys back. You guys have a good time? How many did you leave behind? Two? That's about 98% return. That's about our rate. Good morning. It's good to be with you. We are in the middle of a short sermon series called Get in the Game. And the thesis of this series is simply this, every single one of you in this place who count yourself a follower of Jesus has been called to get into the game, to be a part of the mission of God in his world. And I said last week, the way that we end up playing our position, first of all, is to simply listen to the call from the coach. When the coach says, get in there, you know, it's your turn, tiger, get in. I also shared last week a couple of different responses to that call. There's the response of Isaiah, who said, here I am, Lord, send me. That was a good response. Then there's Moses' response, which is a little less enthusiastic. You remember that one? He said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) I think there's a lot of us that can relate more to Moses than we can to Isaiah when the call of God comes upon our life. I shared with you one of my Moses moments when I was playing on the freshman football team in West Valley, Yakima. We were playing against a a brutal team that was just wiping the field up with us, and the coach finally said, let's send in the second string. And so he said, Toon, you want to go and play quarterback? And I said, no. (laughs) I did not want to walk out into that meat grinder that was Washington Junior High. That was my Moses moment. That was the moment when my call came, and I said, no, not interested. No, thank you. And you all chuckled politely as you did just now, for which I'm grateful. Um, But you might have thought I was exaggerating a little bit about how brutal these guys really were. Well, I got an email last Sunday afternoon from a friend here at Chapel Hill. Here's what he wrote. Did I ever tell you that I played football one year on the Washington football team in Yakima? He said, my year ended during a scrimmage against the first team offense. I was a linebacker attempting to tackle a ferocious running back twice my size. I made the tackle only because the coach told me that I was toast if I didn't. However, a broken ankle was my reward. He said, reading your blog, I felt your pain, and these were my teammates. See, I wasn't exaggerating. They were brutal. These guys were brutal and terrifying. But what if that ferocious running back had been in my backfield? Now, that would be a different story. We're talking about getting into God's mission. We're talking about getting into the game. And I want to say this. Not only have we got the biggest, toughest guy on our team, he's living inside of us. We are capable of way more than we think we are because we're playing with the power and the gifts that do not come from us. They come supernaturally to us. I'm going to read this morning from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were an odd bunch. They were immature They were coming out of a very immoral culture. They had all kinds of questions, and a lot of the New Testament are Paul's letters back to the Corinthians trying to answer their questions about what it means to be a Christian and how to live in community. And so we're going to take a look at one of those letters, a portion of one of those letters, 1 Corinthians 12. It will be tempting for you to jump right to the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in there. Those spiritual gifts are, in the Greek, they're called charismaton or charismata, from which we get the word charismatic. Charis means grace. Mata means gift. So gifts of grace, and it's very interesting and very easy to jump right to that. Don't do it. We're going to look at those next week. That's going to be our focus this week. Here's what I want us to look at today. I want us to look at the giver of the gifts. He's mentioned nine times in this reading. Would you pay attention to the giver of these gifts? First Corinthians 12 starting with verse 1 and then jumping down to verse 4. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that, I'm sorry, verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Who apportions to each one, individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to come into our presence, to come in through your word, to speak to our hearts and transform us. Make this more than information. Make it transformation for us. We need it, and we long for it, and we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you read my blog yesterday, I talked about what I think is the best burger joint in the world. It's in Hire's Burgers in Salt Lake City. And the thing that really tops off Hire's Burgers for me is their special sauce. I was using that obviously as a metaphor, but I wonder if you noticed in this passage, what is the special sauce? Or maybe should I say, who is the special sauce that is appearing in this reading? The special sauce that makes weak people strong, that makes ordinary people extraordinary, that takes the common pew sitters and turns them into one of a kind champions for the kingdom of God. Who is Paul talking about again and again and again nine times? Who is it? It's the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, say it again, Holy Spirit. We Presbyterians have an uncomfortable relationship with the Holy Spirit sometimes. We know that we need him. We know that he's real. We want the forgiveness that he has to give. We want the transformation that he can bring in our lives that only he can provide. But honestly, we start to get a little nervous when we let the spirit off his leash. We like the, the secrets, like the secret sauce I talked about. We want a little bit, but not too much. And, and there's some good reasons that we end up being wary. We are Presbyterians and not Pentecostals, for instance, because we think that too much of a focus on the Spirit can become a little hysterical and imbalanced. And we can focus so much on the Spirit that Jesus ends up being put into the shadows. A biblical theology of the Holy Spirit always exalts Christ above all, always. Dale Bruner, one of my favorite commentators, he puts it this way, he calls the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity, because the Spirit is always pointing to Jesus and not seeking to draw attention to Himself. And so we become a little uncomfortable when the Spirit seems to be the center of devotion, the center of attention. But this morning, I want for the Spirit to be a little bit more the center of attention because I believe that when Presbyterians take the Holy Spirit seriously, we can be a powerful force for the kingdom. When we continue in our exaltation of Jesus, plus our devotion to the study of God's Word, and then add to that a true openness to the working of the Holy Spirit, that is some powerful mojo. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to offer, it's kind of a a little bit more of a teaching sermon for you this morning, and it might be a review for many of you seasoned Christians out there, but given the response I've had from some folks the last couple of services, there are probably a few things that we could brush up on to remind us who the Holy Spirit is, how He works, okay? So we're going to take four little lessons on the Holy Spirit this morning. Lesson number one, the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person and not a force. For those of us who have grown up in the Star Wars era, we will remember that kind of one of the main lines that came out of that series was, may the force be with you. And there is kind of a sense in which many of us think of the Holy Spirit that way. The force is some good, benevolent force that's trying to do good and taking care of things down here. Kind of impersonal, but really pretty good. That is not the Holy Spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is way more than a spiritual force. He is a person. And we know that He is a person because of the way that the New Testament repeatedly represents Him to us, describes Him to us. By the way, there's a starting point. We never refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, a Him. So that's a good starting point for us. The Holy Spirit is described to us in the New Testament in all kinds of ways that underscore His personhood. For instance, in the passage we just read, verse 11, we are told that the Holy Spirit gives out spiritual gifts as He wills. Think about that then. The Holy Spirit thinks. The Holy Spirit is volitional. The Holy Spirit decides what He is going to do. That's the act of a volitional person. We are told elsewhere elsewhere in in the New Testament that the Spirit loves That the Holy Spirit can be insulted, that the Spirit can be grieved, and that the Spirit can be quenched. All of those emotions, they're only possible with a person. An impersonal force doesn't experience quenching or or grief or insult, but a person does. So the starting point is this, the Holy Spirit is a person. Here's the second point, the Holy Spirit is divine. Divine. The Holy Spirit is divine. In other words, the Spirit is nothing less than God. We Christians are something called Trinitarian. We are monotheists who believe that our God represents Himself in three persons. I know it's weird. I know it's hard to get your head around. We didn't just make this up so that we would be confusing Christians for thousands of years to come. We talk about a Trinitarian God because that is how Scripture portrays God. We see Him as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit several places in the Scripture, including the passage we just read. If you take a look at verse 4, for instance, listen to this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but this the same God. Did you see the allusion to the Trinity there? You have Spirit, Lord, who is the Lord, Jesus is Lord, we say it all the time, you have the Spirit, you have Lord, and you have God, or God the Father. So right there in this passage is an allusion to the the, the triune nature of the Godhead, that the Spirit is divine. But there are places where it's even more clear than that. Jesus himself, in what we call the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, he told his disciples to go out and baptize people in the name of God the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus himself was saying the the Spirit is part of the Godhead. And in another part of his teaching, Jesus said that there is one unforgivable sin. Do you remember what that is? It is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. Jesus, who always found a way to forgive everything, he said, here's something that's unforgivable. You can blaspheme me, you can blaspheme the Father. You cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Wow! That sets the Holy Spirit a pretty... That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? You cannot... The very nature of blasphemy is that it's deriding God. And so Jesus himself is describing the Holy Spirit as divine. My point is this. The Holy Spirit is not merely God's spiritual butler tidying things up down here on earth. The Holy Spirit is God with us. In fact, Jesus said, If I don't go away to the Father... I cannot send the Spirit to you, the helper to you. Jesus, when he was here, was confined in a human body and so he could only be one place at one time. It is only when Jesus left and then sent the Spirit to be with us that he could be all places at all times. When we ask Jesus to come into our heart, we don't have a little man that's hiding in some corner of it somewhere. It is the Spirit who comes inside of us. And when we speak of being sanctified, being changed by God from the inside out, Who do we think is doing that work? It is the Holy Spirit who's conforming us more and more by one degree to another into the image of Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, the divine Holy Spirit within us. So the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit is divine. And then we learn from this passage that the Holy Spirit is generous, He's a gift giver, He loves to give gifts. That's the point of this section of Paul's letter. Paul talks about the Spirit, giving out all of these spiritual gifts to help build up the church. Some of these gifts are kind of normal gifts. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. You'll find more spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4, others in a list in Romans 12, and you even find some scattered throughout the Old Testament, gifts like craftsmanship and musicianship. So this is, there's not one place where you can find all of the spiritual gifts. But some of the gifts, when we read about them, we say, well, that's kind of normal. Gifts like encouragement. Gifts like administration. Did you know administration could be a spiritual gift? Gifts like generosity. But then there are some that are a little weird. Gifts like miracles. Gifts like healing. Gifts like speaking in tongues that you have never learned. Gifts like The ability to to interpret the speaking in tongues, unknown tongues. And what Paul tells us is it is the Holy Spirit who is the dispenser of these gifts. He is the one that does all of the giving. And as I mentioned earlier, he parcels them out to whoever he chooses. He says, you're going to have this one, I'm going to give you this one, you, you get a couple, and, you get, and on and on. It is the Spirit's prerogative to give out the gifts that He wants to give to the persons He wants to give for the work of the church He wants to have. It's the Spirit who decides this. And here's the punchline for this sermon series. Every one of us who is in Christ has at least one of those spiritual gifts. Every one of us has at least one how do I know that? It says so in our passage. Verse 7 we read, "...to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good." And Peter, writing him his first letter, he wrote, "...and as each one has received a gift, minister to one another." I'm not talking here about your natural talents, your abilities, the way that God wired you like we read about in Psalm 139 where God knitted us together in our mother's womb. That's not what I'm talking about. You were made a certain way when God created you. But beyond that, when you come into Christ, there's a, a gift that is given to you by the Spirit that is uniquely for you. Every single believer in Jesus has at least one. Some of us have more and some of us acquire more in the journey of our spiritual walk. And these spiritual gifts then, they're not for us to hoard, they are for us to use. Which means if you are not using your spiritual gift or gifts for the good of God's mission, you're holding out on us. You are limiting what we can do. You're holding out on what God has called you to do amongst this body. So the Spirit is a person, the Spirit is divine, the Spirit is generous, and finally I would say the Spirit is unchanging. The Holy Spirit is the same Spirit from 2,000 years ago when He came at Pentecost. He's the same Spirit who, we are told in Genesis 1, hovered over the face of the deep This is the same Holy Spirit. The Spirit is unchanging. He's eternally God. He's eternally creative, eternally generous, eternally holy. He doesn't change, which means that Holy Spirit is still the giver of all of the gifts necessary for Christ to do His work in His church. And I would say that there are some believers who don't believe this. There are some Christians who do not believe this. They think that the miraculous spiritual gift, the spigot, was turned off at some point in history. They believe that every miraculous and supernatural gift ceased after what they call the age of the apostles. And that means that there's no more healings, no more miracles, no more tongues, no more prophecy, no more interpretation of tongues. All of that is gone. It belongs to a bygone era. In my opinion, there's nothing in the Bible that teaches this. Nothing that suggests that the Holy Spirit was more free to be generous with the diversity of His gifts 2,000 years ago than He he is today. There's nothing in the Scriptures to me that suggests that the miraculous had to come to an end with the death of the last apostle or had to come to an end with the, the compilation, the final compilation of the Bible as others teach In other words, I want to tell you, I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are valid and available today. But let me also say this. I'm Presbyterian. I was raised in a more buttoned-down church culture, as many of you might have been. And those of us Presbyterian ilk, we still tend to be suspicious of the ooey-wooey things that we find in more Pentecostal churches. We sometimes call them a little dismissively, oh, those charismaniacs. We look, we look to our Bible as our sole source of truth and teaching, which is a good thing, but we become very suspicious about any, core, any sort of supernatural revelation. And I think in part this has to do with our control issues I think we Presbyterians have control issues. I think American Christians have control issues. You take a look at what's happening in the African church. They don't got no control issues, and there's a lot of that stuff going on over there. If we really believe that the Holy Spirit is still the giver of gifts today, even gifts that are a little weird, it means that we aren't really in as much control as we think we are. It means that God might do some strange stuff that is beyond our control and beyond our manipulation and beyond our understanding and beyond the pale. When we are so afraid that the Holy Spirit might move outside of the box, that we aren't willing to allow God to be God. I think we are on some very unsteady ground, don't you? We are at risk Of quenching the Holy Spirit as Paul warned us never to do. So that's one extreme. We shut him down. On the other extreme we find those who claim that unless you manifest certain kinds of spiritual gifts then you're not really a Christian or not really spirit-filled. There were some who say that unless you speak in tongues you are not really a spirit-filled believer and I would just say that is manifestly wrong. And I can prove it to you from the words of Paul himself, who asked the question, do all speak in tongues? And his implied answer was, no, they do not. Right from Paul. So we got these extremes, but surely there's a sweet spot somewhere, isn't there? Surely there's a sweet spot. When a person says to me, ah, that's not the way the Holy Spirit works anymore, I kind of want to take one step back, because I'm saying, who are you to presume to say how the Holy Spirit works? Is it really you? Is it yours to declare what the Holy Spirit's agenda and method might be? How do we know how the Holy Spirit will work? And are we really willing to say that the Spirit just cannot do it that way anymore? Doesn't being God mean that you can decide what you want to do? Isn't that like the job description of God? Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that it makes me any less mm, uncomfortable with some of this stuff. I still don't get it. I'm not a a big tongue speaker. I don't lay hands on people and have them miraculously grow legs longer and stuff like I've seen. But I know that there are spirit-gifted people who do those things, people who do possess one or more of these supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And if that is true, do we really want to say to those people, we Presbyterians have no need of those kinds of spiritual gifts, Go hang out with the assembly of God, folks. We want things decent and orderly here. I don't want to say that. I don't want to lose out on that. When we went to the Alpha Conference, we were led in a session of prophetic prayer. We were invited to ask the Spirit to fill us anew and to give us more and more of Himself. I knelt down by one of the ancient pillars in that church, and I did that very thing. And I found it to be enormously powerful. But one guy who was the pastor of a large church did not like it at all. He was weirded out by it. The whole Holy Spirit thing, Ooh, just too much for him. Which, of course, is why every time I saw him, I walked towards him and went, <laughs> freaked him out. <laughs> for him, the, too much of the Holy Spirit was a deal breaker. Let me ask, can we ever have too much of the Holy Spirit? As a person, can we ever have too much of the Holy Spirit? As a church, can we ever have too much of the Holy Spirit? Some preachers will tell you that there is something they call the second infilling or the second baptism. You have a little bit of the Holy Spirit that comes into you when you're saved initially, but it's only when that second baptism of the Spirit comes and you're speaking in tongues or some other expression of the Spirit. Only then have you really got all of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. What Paul does say in Ephesians chapter 5, he says we should be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the language. It says filled in the English translation, but the Greek says be continuous, continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not just once, not even twice, thrice, four and five and six and six hundred, six thousand, six million times, again and again. So Why? Why do we need to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit? Because we leak. We leak. We really do. We are filled up and we are moving in the power of the Spirit and in his anointing. And then being humans, it just kind of seeps out a little bit. It's like that bicycle tire. It's filled up full. It's going strong. And then it stops to drop. It needs to be topped up. The Spirit comes in and fills you up and you're ready to go again. That's why at the end of every service, I I offer a benediction. It's just not nice words to send you out feeling warm and fuzzy. The intent is to pronounce God's favor upon you, to pronounce His anointing on you, to send you forth in the power of the Spirit, to do what God has called you to do. It's why nearly every morning, I start my prayers, sometimes while I'm still lying in bed, and recently more than ever, with the opening prayer, just saying, Holy Spirit, fill me up. Fill me up. Come Holy Spirit, fill me anew. I want to give more of myself to Him. I want Him to give more of Himself to me. I need all the Spirit I can get. That doesn't mean that I still understand it all. It doesn't mean that I'm not uncomfortable with the possibilities of what happens when the Holy Spirit does get off of the leash. It means, it means that I realize that I and we as a church cannot possibly be all that God intends for us to be, cannot possibly do all that God intends for us to do unless we are filled by the Spirit, cleansed by the Spirit, transformed by the Spirit, transported by the Spirit, gifted by the Spirit, lifted by the Spirit, powered by the Spirit. I want more. I want you to want more. So we're going we're gonna to close with a, a little un-Presbyterian exercise. I want you to stand up. I want you to put your hands out like this. And I'm going to teach you one of the a- most ancient prayers in the church. It's come Holy Spirit. I just taught it to you. Come Holy Spirit. We prayed this service, this prayer in the last service. We spent a time just simply inviting over and over again, come Holy Spirit, and then waiting to see what God would do. And we have no idea. I have no idea. Let me tell you a couple of things I heard after this last service. One man who never talks to me after the service, kind of a button-down guy, he walked up to me and said, I never talk to you after the service. He said, but when we were praying, there was something happened inside of me. It was like a warm thing that started here and it came all the way up and I found myself bawling. I was just crying. I would never have expected it from this guy. There was a woman who was following him. She came up afterwards. She said, I gotta tell you what happened when you were praying. She said, I have had such pain in my back and I just felt the spirit touch this side of my body like I'd never experienced it before. So, I invite you to pray with expectation. Who knows what healing he might want to bring? Who knows what gift he might want to bring? Who knows what manifestation he might want to bring? And I know we're letting him off the leash, but watch out. So close your eyes with me. The prayer will simply be, come Holy Spirit, we'll pray it. when, When I say those words, repeat after me, and we will just wait and see what God wants to do. Come Holy Spirit. children we are your church we remember Pentecost and how that you came and filled up your people at that point we not want that again so we say come Holy Spirit patiently for you, Lord, as the disciples sat in the upper room waiting for your coming, waiting for the power that you had to give for them to do what they were called. They waited and you came. say more of you more of your peace more of your power more of your love more of your joy more of your forgiveness more of your healing more of your hope more of your confidence of your call come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit fill this place come upon us you as you once did in Pentecost Fill us with the, the power and the gifts, the joy, the hope that is ours in Christ. Send us forth different than we were, empowered as we had not been before, confident of your call as we have not been before, equipped to do what we have not done before, all because you have said yes to our invitation. Come, Holy Spirit.